Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. If you'd open up a Bible to Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to begin. We'll be in a number of different places in the New Testament this morning, but it's going to start in Mark the first chapter. Get ready to spend the next few minutes together listening to God. We've been talking to the Lord for the last few minutes in prayer and in song, and now we're going to let Him talk to us through the pages of His book. It's great to see everybody on this very cold, wintry morning. Very thankful that the Lord is given a safe passage here, and it is very encouraging. As Cody alluded to the announcements, very encouraging to get up and to see uh, really quite a fine number considering the conditions outside. I'm glad that you're here, and I appreciate your desire to want to worship the Lord this first day of the week. This morning, Q&A night makes a very rare appearance during the AM worship hour as I am dealing with a question that I think really does merit its own standalone lesson Because it is a question that I think a lot of people have at at different points in time and maybe in in kind of different respects. And so I think it is deserving of our uh, very careful attention for these next few minutes. And I'd like to begin that in Mark, the first chapter. This is the baptism of Jesus that we're reading about. And we're told in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, that in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now that would have been an amazing sight to behold and that would have been some amazing sounds to hear, wouldn't it? That as Jesus is plunged under and then pulled up from the water... He looks up and the sky just rips apart. And the Spirit of God descends from above in bodily form, in the form of a dove. And then the very voice of God bellows from above, thunders from above and issues His words of commendation. Think about all that. That would have been just an amazing display of of sights and sounds. I think it would have been the kind of display that would have certainly encouraged Jesus as He's about to begin and embark upon His earthly ministry. Because in that moment, God the Father, He demonstrated and then audibly voiced His approval of His Son. doesn't really get more encouraging than that, does it? To have God give just a figurative pat on the back and to say, Good job, Son. You have made me happy. I am pleased with you. That is awesome. I wonder though, I wonder how many of us experienced that same kind of thing whenever we were baptized. That we came up out of the water and all of a sudden we looked up and the sky just ripped apart. And the Holy Spirit descended in some form down upon us. And then God spoke in an audible voice and He said, Josh, I'm pleased with you, buddy. Yeah, that didn't happen for me. And I'm guessing for those of you that have been baptized, that's not how that happened for you either. As a result, a lot of people do come up out of the waters of baptism and they then embark and begin that journey throughout life. Maybe they even go for several years until they end up reaching a a moment, a point in their life that causes them to think back to that day when they were baptized into Christ. 
Maybe something happens in their life that just triggers that and causes them to think about their baptism. Maybe, for example, they hear a sermon and they hear some information that maybe was some things they had never really considered before about baptism and now they're starting to kind of rethink and wonder whether their baptism initially was correct. Maybe here's a person just in their own personal studies. Maybe as they're reading in the Bible, they're reading in the book of Acts about the various conversions, and they're reading in the New Testament, and maybe just as they're learning and reading, they gain a a better understanding of some things. Some pieces start to fit together that didn't fit together before, and now it's causing them to ask questions and to wonder, was I baptized really for the right reasons? Did I have the right motivations whenever I did that? Or maybe here's a person who... It's just maturing in the faith. Maybe they begin to then reflect back upon years gone by. And they reflect back to that day when they made the decision to become a Christian. Maybe they did that even when they were very young. And now they're starting to question. They're starting to doubt about whether or not what they did then, whether or not it truly pleased the Lord. And it is in those moments when we have those thoughts that yeah, we probably really do wish that God would have spoken from the heavens. That He would have given some kind of a personal sign of His approval. Because all of that uncertainty, it's causing us to ask the question, how do I know if my baptism was valid? You heard that question before? I have heard that question before. In fact, I've heard it asked in kind of a number of different ways. How do I know if my baptism was valid? Or maybe it's asked this way. How do I know if my baptism was scriptural? Or how about this? How do I know if my baptism was accepted by God? All those questions are valid. How about we maybe phrase the question using the language of Mark chapter 1 verse 11. How do I know if my baptism pleased the Lord? Let me tell you why I like phrasing it that way. Because there is nothing more important in this life than pleasing God. There is nothing more valuable than knowing with full biblical confidence that you are in a right relationship with your Creator. That what you have done, that it has found favor, it has found approval in the eyes of your Maker. Which is why this morning, I do want to attempt to answer this question. And I want to try to answer that in a way that all of us will be able to know with full assurance and with full certainty that either my baptism pleased God or it didn't. And either way, whichever side of the fence you end up falling on that this morning, either way, I think this is a win-win. Because first of all, if you measure yourself by the Word of God this morning and you come to the conclusion that your baptism was pleasing to God, then praise the Lord, you're saved. That's great. But if on the other hand, you measure yourself by the Word of God this morning, and you come to the realization, you come to the conclusion that you know what? You haven't pleased God. Then guess what? You're going to get an opportunity. In fact, in just a few minutes, you're going to get an opportunity to change all of that. And that also will be a good outcome. And so for these next few minutes, my hope is that you and I, we will be willing to do just some honest self-examination Not for the purpose of creating doubt, that's not the purpose of this morning's lesson, but for the purpose of finding confidence in the Scriptures. And yes, you might be thinking, I do believe 
that this lesson will prove helpful as a resource and as a tool whenever we're talking with our denominational friends, people who oftentimes have a very different understanding about the purpose of baptism and the method of baptism, you can use this lesson to help challenge them in their thinking, just kind of walk them through some things. You may even want to this afternoon to get the link to the lesson and send that to somebody. But first and foremost, I do need to say that I'm talking, I'm talking to the people that are in this room right now. And I'm asking you and I'm asking me, let's evaluate our own spiritual condition by thinking about ten things that make a baptism pleasing to God. And yes, you heard me right. Ten points. Josh is preaching a ten-point sermon this morning. But I do plan to be a little bit efficient with the clock to get all ten of those points in. And that's just going to start right here with point number one. Let's see how quickly we can do this first point. Number one, yes, your baptism was pleasing to God... If it was the one baptism. Let's find Ephesians, the fourth chapter, please. In Ephesians chapter 4, here is a chapter that we got very familiar with during our winter meeting last weekend. And after talking about all those attitudes that help to bring about unity in verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul then writes about what's the platform for unity? What's the basis for our unity? Well, Ephesians 4 tells us, verses 4, 5, and 6 says that there is one body... And one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, if someone were to come to you and they were to say, you know what, I was saved by my Lord, and you were saved by your Lord, Because don't you know, every culture and every tribe kind of has their own lords. What would you say to that? You'd probably say, well, hold on there. Let's wait up just a second there. There's only one Lord. You can't be saved without that one Lord. There's not a multiplicity of lords. There's just one. Well, the same is true whenever we talk about the one baptism. There's only one baptism that will save. And if you went into the waters of baptism thinking to yourself, eh, any baptism will do. There's all kinds of baptisms. Sprinkling, pouring, uh, the baptism of John, baptism for the dead. You read about that in the Scriptures. Infant baptism, Holy Spirit baptism. You know, as long as you do something that's got baptism in the title, it'll be okay. One baptism is as good as another. Well then you might need to rethink about whether or not what you did pleased the Lord. Because God says there is only one baptism. And if we are going to please the Lord, then we better figure out what that one baptism is so that we can then do it. And over the course of these next nine points, we're going to see exactly what that one baptism is, like this second truth. And that is that yes, your baptism pleased God if it was by His authority in obedience to His will. Now this one might seem obvious to us in some ways, but I do need to include it on this list. Would you find Matthew chapter 28? In Matthew chapter 28, these are the words of Jesus shortly before He ascends back into heaven. And it is there that He says to His disciples in Matthew chapter 28, look at the very end of the chapter, Matthew 28 verse 18, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them... In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, 
even to the end of the age. You know, the one baptism is right here. It is the one that Jesus commissions here as being by the authority of God. And that's really what's meant by that expression there in verse 19. In the name of. That's a phrase about authority. Police officers, I don't know if they still say it, but they used to say it. They'd knock on somebody's door. Open up. In the name of the law. What's that mean? It means by the authority of the law. We've been vested with some authority here to ask you to open up your door. And so this morning what I'm saying is I'm saying that anybody who is seeking to truly please the Lord, they're going to be baptized out of a response to that rule and to that command of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that I am wanting to surrender my will to His authority. Now you might be thinking right now, well Josh, you know that was kind of a no-brainer. Why do we really even need to include that on the list? I mean, after all... What other authority would we be submitting to in baptism? Oh, you'd be surprised. Some people are baptized by the authority of their mama or by the authority of their daddy. Some people are are baptized by the authority of a grandparent or some other kind of influential person in their family. Some people are baptized by the authority of their peers who lean upon them heavily and influence them to do this important thing because, well, we did this important thing. Some people are baptized by the authority of a spouse or a significant other because doing so would make that person happy. But if your baptism truly pleased God, it's because you brought yourself under the authority, not of any of those people, but because you brought yourself under the authority of your Creator. For the purpose of obeying His will for your life. Was that true for you? We just need to think back. Need to, need to examine that. Need to recalibrate about that. Let's add a third layer to that from Acts the 8th chapter. Because if your baptism was pleasing to God, then it absolutely had to be an immersion in literal water. In Acts chapter 8, please, this is just one of several passages that we could look at. But you will remember this story. It is the conversion story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip has been preaching unto him Jesus. He's strolling along down through the desert, has the opportunity to have a Bible study with this guy. He preaches unto him Jesus. Part of that preaching and teaching must have included something about baptism because in verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, well, see, right here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 37, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 38 now. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now that passage actually helps us with a lot of different things. The first being that the one baptism cannot merely be talking about just some some spiritual experience. And that's a big kind of thinking today. Lots of people, you even ask them about baptism. Oh yeah, I was baptized. Oh yeah, tell me about that. And what they're talking about is they're going to talk to you about some big spiritual experience that they had. Where the Spirit of God just kind of flooded over their soul. Yes, that that that's how I was baptized. Well, what we're looking at here in Acts chapter 8 and verse 38, this is a baptism in literal H2O. This is actual water. And I would call your attention secondly to the fact there that they went down into that water, verse 38. 
But then verse 39 goes on to say that they then came up out of that water. And why is that? Well, that's because baptism is a total immersion. Baptism, just by its very definition, is an immersion. There is nary a verse in the New Testament that teaches sprinkling or pouring or some other method of baptism in order to please God. So here's the tough question. Were you, when you were baptized, were you immersed in literal water? A complete submerging and burial in keeping with the Lord's instruction and in keeping with the Lord's example. You need to think about that, don't I? I realize that it's real easy for people to say, well, you know what, I don't see why that really matters. You know, a total immersion or not. You know, what's the big deal about that? Why does that matter? Hey, listen, I I thought we were trying to please God here. Isn't that what this is about? Aren't we seeking the approval of the Lord here? And if God's book says in one place or in several places, as this particular point does, if the Bible says that baptism is an immersion, then you know what? It ought to matter to us. That ought to be seen as a big deal to us. But fourthly, I would tell you, it's not just the mode of baptism that's important. I would tell you, fourthly, that the motivation for why we are baptized is also important. And so, fourthly, if your baptism pleased God, it is because you recognize that you were a sinner and that you were in desperate need of a Savior. I'm looking for the book of Romans now. Would you find Romans chapter 3? We'll be in Romans for the next couple of points. In Romans chapter 3, the first, really, first three chapters in Paul's letter to the Romans firmly establishes God's righteous judgment against sin. And what makes that particularly distressing and bad news is because what Romans 3 verse 10 says, and that is that none is righteous, no, not one. That includes you and me. And that is because verse 23, the famous passage of Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Those verses, in fact, the whole first three chapters of Romans, lead us to the inescapable conclusion that I am a sinner. That I am the unrighteous person being talked about in these verses. I am wrong with God. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that baptism, baptism doesn't make you right with God unless you first understand that sin has made you wrong with God. So what that means is that means that baptism is not something that you do just because you reach a certain age. Baptism is not something you do because, well, you attend a certain church. Baptism is not something you do because, well, it's something that somebody told you you ought to do. No, baptism, the kind that pleases God, is born out of a realization, a recognition that I have sinned, And because of that, I am lost, I am separated from God, and there is nothing that I can do of my own power and my own ability to fix that. I need help here. I need the Lord. And by the way, this right here is exactly why, I hope you already understand this, this is why infant baptism just doesn't make any sense at all. What sin has an infant child committed that would cause them to be lost? And furthermore, this is also the reason why sometimes we are reluctant to baptize really small children. Because they don't yet have the maturity or even the wherewithal to understand, uh, have a sense of personal sinfulness. In fact, I would even take that a step further. If an adult does not have an awareness of sin in their own lives, I'm going to tell you, 
I'm not going to baptize that person. And the reason is is because it's just not going to do them any good. Because without an awareness, which then usually ought to provoke a sorrow over one's own sin, without that, there can be no repentance. And if there is no repentance, then baptism is, is really just an empty ritual. There needs to be a fundamental attitude change in how I think about sin. In fact, we'll talk about that a little bit further in just a moment. And so if your baptism was not predicated upon some understanding of sin in your own life, then I'm not entirely confident that it did you any good. But if on the other hand, if you were serious about your soul, you were serious about your spiritual condition, you understood about sin, and you realized that you wanted to be free from sin's power and dominion in your life, and you realized that you needed Jesus in order to make that happen, then rest assured, you had the proper motivation that you needed to be baptized. Which leads right into point number five, and that is that yes, your baptism pleased God if it was for the purpose of being united with Jesus Christ. If you'll stay there in Romans, just flip a page or two over to chapter 6. In chapter 6, Paul is actually writing to some people who have already been baptized, but he wants them to kind of do what we're doing in this lesson. He wants them to, to think back. I want you to remember. I want you to remember what should have taken place in that water. In Romans chapter 6, this is verse 3. Paul says there, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Paul says that baptism unites you. Maybe another word that we might use, baptism connects you to Jesus. It connects you to the power of Jesus. It is what places you into His death, His burial, and His resurrection, which is what is enabling us to have the victory over sin. And that is so critical for us to understand. Because there are so many religious groups today who teach that in order for you to be united with Christ, you want a personal relationship with Jesus, you want to be connected with Jesus, then all you need to do is you just need to believe. You just need to accept Jesus into your heart. Maybe pray this little prayer and can't these specific words. If you just confess Him openly as your personal Savior, you can be united with the Lord. And then, yeah, some point down the road, some point later if you want to be baptized as a, as, as a good work, sure, you can do that then. Can, can I just ask, where's the verse for any of that? Where is that talked about at all anywhere in the New Testament? Because I'll tell you, I've got a set of verses right here in Romans chapter 6 that says that baptism is what unites us with Jesus Christ. I can add to that Galatians 3 verse 27. That's that passage that says that you've been baptized into Christ, clothed with Christ. Were you baptized in order to be brought into that spiritual union with Jesus, the very one who is able to deliver you from your sins? If so, then what Scripture is affirming to you this morning is that what you did was pleasing to God. Let's keep building on that idea with this sixth thing. That baptism is pleasing to the Lord when it marks the beginning of a new life. Now, I sort of touched on this one just a moment ago, but what happens 
What happens whenever someone is, maybe they're really rock solid on these first five points. I mean, they're, they're good with all this. Hey, I was baptized into the one baptism that God authorized. It was a total and complete immersion. And I did that because I realized I was a sinner and I needed some kind of refuge. I wanted Jesus. I wanted to be connected to Him. And that's why I did that. But then what happens when that person then comes out of the waters of baptism and nothing about their life changes? That they are generally the same person after baptism that they were before baptism. What happened there? Well, what happened there is that that person did not make a commitment to a new way of living. They did not take advantage of what is supposed to happen whenever a person is truly baptized into Christ. Are you still here in Romans chapter 6? Look in verse 1. Paul just begins by addressing what was clearly a problem with some of the people there in Rome. Romans 6 verse 1 seems like they had kind of been like this person. Romans 6 1, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No, by no means. How can we who died to sin still keep living in it? Then verses 3 through 5, those passages we read a moment ago, talking about being united with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. A big change takes place there. Drop down even further. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, notice it now, you have become slaves of righteousness. Now let's be clear. You read those verses, talk about a person being baptized and how a great change needs to take place in that person. I want to be very clear. I'm not preaching and Paul is not preaching that you need to be sinlessly perfect once you are baptized. That's not what Paul's talking about. And the Lord doesn't say that anywhere in His book. You know and I know that temptation still presents itself every day in the life of a Christian. And yes, Christians do give in to those temptations from time to time. We fall short of the glory of God. And that is exactly why God provides for us a second law of pardon, if you will. First John chapter 1, verse 9, amongst other places, that talks about confessing our sins to God. If we'll do that, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But you and I also know that there are people who go into that water a slave of sin, and they come out of that water still a slave of sin. They did not repent. They did not crucify that old man or that old woman. Instead, what happened? What happened was it just got wet. That's what happened. And if that describes what happened whenever you were baptized, then you must know very candidly that you did not please the Lord in doing that. But if on the other hand, if the day that you were baptized, if you look back at that and you realize, you know what, that was a defining moment in my life. That was a milestone moment. Because that was the day that I got a fresh start. That was the beginning of a new life. That was day one of my new walk with Jesus Christ. Then what Romans 6 is saying loudly and clearly is you pleased God. God is happy with you because that's what baptism is supposed to be about. 
Well, look a little bit further here. Number seven. Here's something that maybe you would have expected as I'm putting together this list. You probably would have expected this to be like near the very top of that list. But that is, if your baptism is pleasing to God, then it's the fact that you understood that it was something that was essential to your salvation. Now, I placed this one a little bit further down the list because I wanted us to already have read those verses in Romans chapter 6 first. Because those verses talked about things like being united in Christ's death. Being united in Christ's resurrection. Doing all of that in order to have newness of life, a new lease on life. Those things, when I think about that, being united with Jesus, being able to walk in newness of life, those things are pretty essential, aren't they? If I want to go to heaven, I would think, yeah, I absolutely need to have those things. I need to be connected to Jesus. I need to be able to have a new life so that I can be in heaven someday. And so if those things are essential then the means by which we obtain those things is also essential. If somebody were to say, you know what, I can be united with Christ without baptism, I'm going to say, no, you cannot. If somebody says, I can begin a new life in Christ without being baptized, I'm going to say, no, you cannot. Romans 6 and other places says that those blessings are obtained in the waters of baptism. And when somebody comes along and they want to teach and they want to say, I can be saved without being baptized, once again, I'm going to say, no, you cannot. What did Jesus say in Mark 16, 16? He who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? He who believes and is baptized will be saved. What's that sound like to you? Does that sound to you like baptism is somehow you know, kind of optional equipment here? Or what about a passage like 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 that really just drills down to brass tacks? Peter says there, baptism now saves you. I'm not hearing anything in those passages that make baptism out to sound like some kind of a, well, if you want to do that, you can do that. And if you don't want to, that's not that big of a deal. You know, it's a good work if you want to do it and thumbs up for you for doing that. But it's not necessary, absolutely essential in order for you to be saved. Listen, if you were immersed in water, but you believe that you were already saved when you did that, then I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But that did not meet with God's approval. That did not meet with what the Scriptures teach about salvation. Because all of those great blessings that you think that you had before the water, God placed those blessings in the water and you robbed it of that. To the individual who was buried with Christ in that watery grave. Because you believe what 1 Peter 3.21 says. That baptism now saves you. That, that pleases the Lord. Because that shows a seriousness to take God and to take His Word seriously. Just like this eighth and next truth. And that is that a baptism that pleases the Lord is one that is for the forgiveness of sins. This is obviously one of the very first things that we ask whenever somebody comes to us and maybe they're kind of struggling and having some uncertainty about their baptism. And they're saying, I'm just not really sure if I was baptized correctly or for the right reasons. One of the first questions I know that we often ask is, well... Were you baptized for the remission of your sins? And there's a reason that we ask that, a good reason that we ask that. Would you find Acts chapter 2? 
In Acts chapter 2, this is the day of Pentecost. Where you've got all these people, we're talking thousands of people, who have gathered together in Jerusalem, and they're going to hear Peter preach the first gospel sermon. Have you ever noticed that actually throughout that entire sermon, beginning in verse 14 all the way down through verse 36, that Peter never actually tells these people to do anything, apart from his first admonition to to hear the words I'm going to say, Peter never tells them, now you need to be baptized, or you need to repent, or you need to live a faithful life. Nowhere in that sermon does Peter tell any of that kind of stuff. All Peter does was just tell these people who Jesus was, and that you killed Him. Then he leaves the ball in their court. And they're then the ones who come back to him and say, what do we do about that? What do we need to do to take care of that? Is there anything we can do about that? Those people were convicted of their sin. That's point number four there. They realize they've done a terrible and heinous thing. And so they come to Peter. Peter, tell us please, what can we do? And Peter obliges, verse 38. Peter said to them, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, you just ask a few of your friends this week, some of your religious friends, hey, is baptism for the forgiveness of sins? No. That's probably what you're going to get. You're going to get like, no. Of course not. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. Baptism is for the remission of your sins. No. Well, I'll tell you this. These people in Acts chapter 2, They didn't think that that was ridiculous. They didn't think that that was absurd. 3,000 people answered that invitation that day because they wanted their sins forgiven. In the language of Acts 22 verse 16, they wanted their sins washed away. So this morning, I'll ask you this. If you were baptized merely as an outward sign of an inward grace, if you were baptized simply for the purpose of making a public declaration of your faith that you are already a Christian, I've got to tell you, I don't have any verses that I can give you that's going to provide any kind of assurance that you please the Lord in doing that. I really have nothing for you. But if, on the other hand, you were baptized into Christ in order to receive what Peter talks about there in verse 38, to receive divine pardon and forgiveness made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then you did what those people did in Acts chapter 2. And I am confident in saying that that pleased God. Now dovetailing right off of that is this ninth idea, and that is that your baptism would have pleased God if it was so you could be added to the body of Christ. If you're still there in Acts chapter 2, look at verse 47, the end of the chapter. You'll notice that the Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. No one can add you to the body of saved people except God. You can't add yourself to that body. No person can add you. No local congregation can add you to the body of Christ. No other Christian can add you to the body of Christ. It is only God who does that. God does the saving and God does the adding here. And in Acts chapter 2, God put those people into His body, into His church, because they had submitted to His will in repentance and in baptism, just as Peter had said. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says it really even more explicitly here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this is verse 13. In 1 Corinthians 12 and in verse 13, Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, 
slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. You look at the description there in verse 13. That's a pretty diverse family. Jews and Gentiles, slave people and free people. Black, white, male, female, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. All these people coming together, but Paul says that's God's family. It is a family that spans centuries of time and it touches every corner of the globe. How do you get into that family? Well, God puts you there. And He puts you there whenever you are baptized into that one body. Let me just say very clearly, if you were baptized in order to gain entrance or membership into some local church congregation, if your baptism simply served as kind of an initiation ceremony into a particular denomination or religious group, then you didn't do what 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about. You didn't do what those people in Acts 2 did. That's not what you did. You did something completely different. Baptism is not this procedure, this formality that we do in order to be added to a congregation's directory or role. Baptism is so that we can be added to the body of the saved. In fact, the saved of all time, the saved of all time who one day will all be gathered together in heaven, all gathered around the Father's throne praising Him through the ages. Did your baptism put you into that one Body. If it did, then you can know for certain that it pleased the Lord because He's the one who put you there. That's how you know that. And then tenth and finally this morning. The kind of baptism that pleases God is the kind that is done with a sense of urgency. You know, every now and then, uh, I or somebody will preach on baptism and After services, it never fails. Somebody will come up to me afterwards and they'll say to me or to whoever's preaching, they'll say, you know, that was a great sermon and I just don't know why so-and-so didn't come forward. You know, they know what's right. I know that they believe it. They they say it and they, they act it and they show that they believe it. I just don't understand why they haven't been baptized. I know why. It's because they lack this sense of urgency. It's because they believe that they're always going to have tomorrow, another day. I'll have next week, I'll have next month, I'll have next year, I'll have ten years from now to do that. And so there's no rush to act upon whatever measure of belief or convictions that they have right now. Now here's the thing, as much as I would love to, you can't force urgency. You can help people in that direction. You can even get up and you can maybe even scare people a little bit. And sometimes that rattles people's chains. Fear works in, in some measure. But you can't force and twist people's arms into being urgent. Urgency comes when we are so pierced, so pricked by the Word of God in our heart that the clarity of its message, it just cuts us right down to our very core and we are moved to action immediately. Look at Acts 16. I'll show you that. In Acts the 16th chapter, here's a guy who did have, admittedly, he had a little bit of fear working in him. There's an earthquake that's taking place here in the middle of the night. He's in a panic. And he's in kind of at the end of his rope. He's at a moment of desperation. 
And he has Paul and Silas here, a couple of guys who are Christians. He recognizes they know something about the Bible. And so he says to them in Acts chapter 16 and in verse 30, they brought him out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. At once, same hour of the night. What time was it? Verse 25 says, we're talking after midnight here. Could have been real easy for that guy to say, you know, hey guys, it's been a really long night. A lot has happened here. Appreciate you all teaching me. I've learned a lot. I've got a lot that I need to digest. I think I just need to sleep on this a little bit. Maybe I'll get back with you in a couple days and we'll just kind of take it from there. In fact, stop and think about it. It would have even been really easy for Paul and Silas to do that very same thing. They could have said, hey, you know what? We've had a really long day. If you know what we've been through here in Philippi, you would be very, you'd be very considerate of us. So let's just kind of table this Bible study and all of this stuff. Let's just table this till a later date. But this Philippian jailer, he was not going to be denied. And I'm going to submit to you this morning that if your baptism was pleasing to God, it's because you just would not accept no for an answer. Do you know what I mean by that? That I cannot wait until tomorrow. I cannot wait until next week. I cannot wait for a more convenient time to come. It has to be today. It has to be right now. Well, why does it have to be today? Why does it have to be right now? Well, because I'm a sinner. And I realize I'm a sinner. I realize that I'm lost. And I'm in need of a Savior. And I need forgiveness. And I need salvation. I need that new life in Christ. In fact, that's the whole problem with many of the practices of denominational churches concerning baptisms who will schedule baptisms a week out or a month out. Or maybe they'll schedule those quarterly or semi-annual or maybe just annually. And people will then wait until that date rolls around on the calendar, and then, then they'll be baptized. Where's the urgency there? Where's the urgency that the jailer had? Where's the urgency that the eunuch had? Where's the urgency that those people on the day of Pentecost had? Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Did your baptism have that kind of urgency to it? When the light bulb, when everything finally clicked, was it a, this is a go time, i got to do this right now. I pray that it did. But if it didn't, that's not bad news. Because you're still breathing. And right behind that curtain there is a pool of water, warm water. Even in the middle of January, we got warm water back there. And more importantly than all of that, your heart still has a chance to embrace the gospel that God wants to write upon it. I'm not going to push you this morning with anything more than what I've already said. I'm just going to finish exactly where I started. By saying that there is nothing more important in this life than pleasing God. That those same words that God said of His Son Jesus, those same words need to be said of us. Nothing in the world holds a candle to the Creator of the universe looking down upon you and saying, I have accepted you. I have forgiven you. 
I have saved you. I am pleased with you. There is something that you need to do in order for you to leave here today with a settled certainty and confidence that you are in a right relationship with God. You know what you need to do. And now is the time to do it. Make your way down front right now while we stand and while we sing.